You know, God, so, so people don't understand God's grace. And the, they think uh, because we, we try to lift up a very high moral standard in the church, a very high standard in, in all areas, some people just equate that with anti-grace for some reason. But, it, but, the, but the stories that, that what God does is you don't even think about. I don't see people through those lens any, you know, once they come under God's grace, they're transformed. And so it's a really a, an honor to be in this position. Thank you, Dave and Hope, for serving for all these years. We're going to miss you. Yeah. So I'm going to try to get you out of here. Uh, I know this is uh, a day you've got things planned. So let's get right into it. This is, um, I'm going to talk about the Christian as a citizen. Uh, this is Independence Day weekend. To most, it simply marks a very special American holiday in the middle of the summer to enjoy food, family, and friends. There's nothing wrong with that. You should do that. However, it's a, a, the, the deeper consideration, of course, is a celebration of when we officially went from being a British colony to being an independent nation, one that decided um, its way of governance, rules of engagement, would determine its own place in the world on July the 4th, 1776. And um, the Second Continental Congress declared that the 13 colonies were no longer subject and subordinate to the monarch of Britain, King George III, and were now united free and independent states. Of course, the uh, revolution didn't end that day. It was uh, a few years later, the Battle of Yorktown was the final battle of that. Um, I would say that for... Uh, at least half of my life, this conversation evoked deep emotion for the general public, you know. But I would say at least since the mid-80s, sentimentality about the country went out of fashion. Although it's, uh, you know, there are events that led to that cynicism, that, uh, that self-loathing probably happened around 20 years before. The events that led to that were Vietnam War, students who were rioting and shot at Kent State, uh, the riots at the Democratic Convention in 1968, Watergate, and the move in public education to start focusing on the dark and shameful sins of America's past. Although there are a lot of people, I contend a majority of both politically liberal and politically conservative persuasions who are saying, hey, guys, I think we've gone too far in this whole matter of national self-hatred. <laughs> no one knows how to bring us back to center, and I'm not saying I do either. So, what we do as believers, we do not, all, and I'm, I'll get back to this later in the message, but we don't always have to know how to fix the world, we have to know how to be in the world. And so that's what I really want to talk about today, is not how to fix the world, I think it's more important to know how to be in the world. And you've got to be in the world as God wants you to be, regardless of whether you fix it or not. And if nothing else, you be what you should be for your conscience sake. That's enough reason to be what you should be. C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor uh, that I never argue with. Uh, there's two people I don't argue with. C.S. Lewis and Mother Teresa. Whatever they say. You know, there's that famous conversation of Malcolm Muggridge after he had come to faith. He's talking to Mother Teresa one day, and he says, you know, she says, uh, uh, why aren't you a Catholic? And he said, well, I believe 
I, I believe God could use me more if I stay out of the church. And she said, no, he can't. It's, he, said, I, he said, I didn't know what to do with that argument, so I became a Catholic. <laughs> Lewis said, the actual history of every country is full of shabby and shameful doings. The heroic stories, if taken to be typical, give a false impression of it and are often themselves open to historical, his, serious historical criticism. Hence, a patriotism based on our glorious past is fair game. For the debunker, I think it's possible to be strengthened by the image of the past without being either deceived or puffed up. I like that. Jesus talked, kind of laid us a template for the, the two citizenships that we have, the citizenship of heaven and the citizenship of earth, the city of man, as, um, as uh, Augustine talked about, the city of man and the city of God. Matthew 12, 13, the leaders sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. The gotcha journalism did not start in the 80s or 90s. Started a long time ago. You are impartial and don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, Why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. When they handed it to him, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, then Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His, his reply completely amazed them. So I'm going to talk today for the next few moments about being, about the Christian call to citizenship. Number one, it is Christian to love one's nation. Dear brothers and sisters, Paul says, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal, for they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. So Paul, in spite of the fact that he had moved on to a supranationalism, he had moved on beyond that. He had not moved on from having a deep love and burden for his nation. I'll admit that in the times past I've seen a, an embarrassing kind of patrio-idolatry that seems to conflate the nation with the kingdom of God. You've seen that. The Constitution with the Bible, the Founding Fathers with the Apostles, and our eternal salvation synonymous with American military victories in places like Iraq. However, just because God's throne isn't draped in the American flag, which it's not, I, I'd probably surprise somebody here, but uh, doesn't mean he doesn't view the nations with particular and individual care and relationship. People, I, I, I think the message is going to have three parts today. It is going to have three parts, but I think it's going to have, the first two parts is going to be hopefully insightful, just from what I'm hearing many people say, and the last part, directional. And I think this, for a lot of people that I hear today, and maybe some even within the church, I think it's insightful to understand that God cares about nations, that he has a relationship with nations, and that he actually uplifts 
the idea of being a nation state. That that is actually a biblical concept, a godly concept, and not something that just a lot of um, terrible people thought of. Does God only care about Israel? I ask that question. Now, most Christians will, will tell you that they love Israel. And for obvious reasons. Israel brought us salvation. Israel brought us Jesus. Israel's responsible for the Old Testament that is so valuable and important to us. So most Christians have a special love for Israel. But do you understand, and if you read the Bible in its fullness, you understand that God had a special relationship with a lot of nations. Israel has their place. He says in the Great Commission, matter of fact, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we see this idea also in Isaiah 49.6, which says, I will make you, Israel, as a light for the nations. He didn't say he's going to obliterate the nations. He's going to make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And you go all the way back to Genesis 22.18. He says to Abraham, through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All because you have obeyed me. Genesis twenty two eighteen. Nothing about the nations being obliterated. Nothing about Israel uh, dominating and become, becoming a globalist power that would, that would uh, assimilate all the nations and all the nations would be, would be Jewish and all the nations would be Israel and all the nations would be culturally Israel. Never, never was that, in, 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 you won't see that anywhere in Scripture or in the mind of God. And uh, Matthew chapter 25, and, and in fact, uh, what interests me greatly is he takes us all the way to the end, all the way to the end of time. There wasn't a break. There wasn't like the book of Acts where uh, we see them speaking in everyone's language. So that's the end of nations. We're not going to have nation states anymore after Acts chapter 1 because the Holy Spirit's going to make us communicate all in the same language. No, he said in Matthew 25, 31, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will set upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. I don't know if this isn't new news to you, but I think it is to a lot of people. In the great reconciliation of all things, back to God, as I've just read to you, we will stand before God as a collection of nations. He said in Revelation 7, 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to the Lord our God. There's even a special tree in the restored creation in the book of Revelation where there are leaves that are there to heal the nations. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1 then the angel showed me the river of water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and, and, of the lamb, and, and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Did you realize that? That God has a plan to end the culmination of all things is to bring the nations together and heal the nations, 
heal the cultures, heal the different, different um, uh, expressions of humanity in different places, in different, in different types. See, God is truly multicultural. Truly. Amen. Catherine Lee Bates, um, back in the late 1800s, was a, a, an English professor at Wellesley College. And uh, I took a trip with a group of uh, fellow teachers. Uh, I think they went to an educational conference in Chicago, and they traveled to Colorado. And looking out over Pikes Peak, she, she says it was there. As I looked out over that, she called it a sea-like expanse of fertile country, spreading one way and another, and under the, under the clear, cloudless sky, that the lines of this text formed in her brain. Oh, beautiful, for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountain majesties above the fruited plains. America, America, God shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. I'm telling you, we are in, on solid ground to love our nation, to be passionate about our nation, and to care about our nation. One of the reasons you need to really care about your nation is because you have to raise your kids in this nation. You have to see your grandkids come up in this nation. You may be fine to go shut yourself in with God at your local church and, and say, I don't care about politics. You may not care about politics, but politics cares about you. <laughs> and you're going to raise your kids in the socio-political environment. You, we're gonna all, we have to swim in the ecosystem that is called the nation. It's okay to love your nation. It's okay to wish your nation well. It's okay to pray for your nation. Can I release you to do that today? The next thing I would say about your nation, about your relationship with your nation, it is Christian to promote the rule of God over our nation. It is Christian to promote the rule of God. It's crystal clear that the social contract and covenants that brought America's humble beginnings of those 13 colonies to become the freest most committed to human rights, the most prosperous and powerful nation in all the world, it's crystal clear that it was grounded in the principles of the Judeo-Christian religion. This is not something that a bunch of uh, flag-waving conservatives made up. Someone will, will counter, but oh well, Pastor, aren't we a pluralistic nation? Uh, and to that I would say yes, we are absolutely uh, a pluralistic nation. We are bound in, by covenant. I think we, 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 we don't understand covenant in, in America anymore. We don't understand the covenant. God honors covenants. Even the ones that he didn't create. He honors the covenants that you make with other people. God probably didn't order you to marry who you married, but he, 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 he calls it a sin when you break the marriage covenant. Now, I'm sure there's a couple of you that God had to make you marry who you married. <laughs> you had to have a, a strong prophetic word in order to do that. But most of you, most of you, you had some choice in the matter, but you made a covenant. Now, God 
holds you to that covenant. And I understand the exceptions and all that. We're not getting to that right now. But, but God, in fact, there, there's this interesting story one time. I've thought about this a lot when I've thought about the covenant that the founding fathers created and uh, what it means to us today. I thought about, there's a story in the Old Testament in Joshua because uh, as Israel became powerful, the nations around them as they moved into this new land that they, that they, were, they inherited, inherited, the nations around them began to get worried because they were kind of stomping on everybody and beating everybody up. And so there, there was this, a, a place called Gibeon, which was a nearby nation that didn't want to have to fight Israel. So they, they had some guys dress up like they had been on a journey for weeks and weeks and were half dead and they showed up at, at, at Israel's door, and Joshua sees them coming, and they welcome them in, and these guys tell their sad story. And so it, Joshua foolishly made a covenant with them that he would take care of them. And then it got revealed that they were an enemy nation. But Joshua was not allowed to go back on his covenant. He still had to keep his covenant. Now, he, he, he did turn them into water carriers <laughs> for the next whatever history they had together, but he wasn't allowed just to dismiss. So I propose to you that the covenants that were made in the founding of America, that God still honors them today. Now, the world may not honor them. That's their problem. And, and many in secular society may not honor them, but that's their problem. So, so let's talk about this matter of pluralism. You know, you know, everybody know what pluralism means? Pluralism? Pluralism means we're tolerant of other points of view. Tolerant of other religions. Tolerant of other religious points of view. Even though, we're, even though, even though there's a Judeo-Christian foundation, it was from the beginning, the founding fathers, the covenant they made that we would be tolerant of Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, atheists, all the rest. That we'd be a country that would tolerate their view. But, but pluralism is tolerance, not surrender. Or else it wouldn't be called pluralism. Because once you surrender to another religious view, it's no longer pluralism. It's a surrender to secularism, and, and the religion that competes with Christianity is secularism, is a religion. It's incompatible with our covenant to, to our view of human rights as originating from God. Now, now, hold on to that thought for a minute. That's a very important thought. Our belief, and the belief of our founding fathers, that human rights originated with God, I'm not saying they carried them out perfectly, but who does? Do you carry human rights out perfectly throughout all of your life? No, you don't. I'll just tell you. I'll answer that for you. <laughs> In fact, I, I looked up secular spirituality, and I, I had no idea that, it, that it's, it's an official term. There's a Wikipedia page on secular spirituality, and here's, I, I'm going to, this is right out of Wikipedia, that trusted source of knowledge and wisdom. <laughs> a lazy man's research tool. <laughs> Secular spirituality is the adherence of a spiritual philosophy without adherence to a religion such as Christianity. Secular spirituality emphasizes the personal growth and inner peace of the individual rather than a relationship with the divine. 
Secular spirituality is made up of the search for meaning outside of a religious framework or institution. It considers one relationship with the self, others, nature, and whatever else one considers to be the ultimate. See, what secular religionists have done is they have co-opted Christian theology. They say there is no God, and then they set themselves up as God. Our founders were not secularist. They, they intended for us to be pluralist, but not secularist. They intended for our nation to be a pluralism, so there was a huge amount of tolerance for other points of view of all, of all sorts, not just religious, but there would be a tremendous amount of tolerance, but they never, they never imagined that the religion of our country would be secularism. That's not what they thought. Uh, James Madison, the fourth president and author of the Bill of Rights, said, religion is the basis and foundation of this institution on the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, control ourselves, and sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. James Madison. Did you know that 94% of the quotes in 15,000 items, newspaper articles, pamphlets, books, diaries, etc., all written by the founding fathers of the United States, 94% of the quotes come directly from the Bible. John Adams said, the second president of the U.S., said, the destiny of America is to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to all men everywhere. In 1811, James Kerr, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, said, We are a Christian people, and the morality of the country is deeply engrafted upon Christianity. Now, he didn't mean that other religions weren't tolerated, but the core of American morality, ethics, and jurisprudence was to be founded on the, on the Scripture and the Christian, Christian faith. In 1950, Chief Justice Earl Warren wrote, I believe no one can read the history of our country without realizing that the God, the book, the good book, and the spirit of the Savior have from the beginning been our guiding geniuses. Whether we look to the first charter of Virginia or to the charter of New England or to the charter of Massachusetts Bay or the fundamental orders of Connecticut, the same objective is present. A Christian land governed by Christian principles. I believe the entire Bill of Rights came into being because of the knowledge of our forefathers had of the Bible and their belief in it. See, pluralism is compatible with Christianity. In fact, the New Testament is very pluralistic. The, the Old Testament naturally was not because it was, it was within the nation of Israel. But the New Testament set us free from the restrictions of the law. And the New Testament set us free to be a people who had people in our lives who died, did not agree with our Christian beliefs and did not agree with our view of God. So pluralism is compatible with Christianity. In fact, our very text, our very text that we read, give, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, unto God's what is God's, is, is painting a picture of a pluralistic view of life. I know years ago, the, the history of BCA, Baptist Christian Academies, we decided to, our first thing we were going to do was a cooperative homeschooling thing. And, uh, and, and, and if you're a homeschooler today, we really support you. So this is not a criticism of you, by the way. 
Um, Sherry and I would have killed our children if we had tried to homeschool them. <laughs> so that's why we didn't do it. <laughs> but the homeschooling parents who showed up for that meeting, their patriotism was a little frightening to me. And I remember we, after the, ooh, we can't do this cooperative homeschool with this group. <laughs> Uh, so we started a regular school, and that's worked out really well. So um, There's also all those wonderful whosoever passages. If you don't think the Bible is pluralistic, whosoever will, uh, uh, hear these sayings of mine and doeth them, Jesus said, receives the kingdom of heaven. For God so loved the world, uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever may believe in him, should not perish for everlasting life. And then there's John 4, 14, whosoever drinketh of the water of life I give, he shall never thirst. That whosoever is a really important word because that means that, means that, that God wants us to have a tolerance. He didn't say, whosoever doesn't, you should damn them. <laughs> no, he's making an offer. You know, whoever wants to get in on the sale that's going on down at Home Depot, go get in on the sale. So that means whosoever doesn't, we love them and treat them with kindness and, and don't try to force our views on them and you can even have a friendship with them, okay? That, I just want to give you permission to do that. Not, that's, it's a, not supposing you aren't doing it already. See, pluralism, and this is really important. I hope you will go study this after the sermon. Pluralism considers individual rights, but secularism enthrones them. And this, see, the, the fissure between, between pluralism and secularism goes all the way back to the very beginning. It goes very back to the beginning of our nation. Thomas Jefferson really leaned toward secularism in many ways, even though he made some Christian statements. He really, he'd been hanging out with the French and the French Revolution, and I don't know, I don't know if you're aware of this thing called the, uh, the French Revolution was uh, built around a document called called uh, the rights of man, the rights of man, and, and that, uh, that evolved, and it was uh, very much influenced by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was a philosopher who really did a lot of things to undermine Christianity, and because, because the monarchy and the church had gotten very corrupt, and there were reasons that, the, that they wanted to start a revolution that would overthrow the monarchy and overthrow the power of the church in France, in, uh, in, in, in the late uh, 1700s and early 1800s. And so they created this document called The Rights of Man. And it's, it's, it's actually not a bad document uh, entirely if you, want to, if you read it, if you want to go read it. But, it, uh, but, but the, the rights of man, is, in fact, it's very similar to our, our, our statement of, of rights, and the, our, our Bill of Rights. But here's the difference. The French Revolution was built on a statement of rights that... That did, not cre- that did not present God as the author of human rights. That did not present that you had human rights and value because you were created by God. It was built on an atheistic preposition. 
And it had no list of responsibilities, only rights. And it was only developed in order to overthrow the people who were in power. So it was a focus, it was a focus on being critical of truth, critical of any institution. Jean-Jacques Rousseau believed that institutions corrupted everybody. And he actually believed that everybody should go live in the woods. And, and really, if you read Jean-Jacques Rousseau, that's what he believed. And here's, here's how Jean-Jacques Rousseau lived his life. He fathered five children. He put them all in orphanages. And in those days, to put a child in an orphanage was a death sentence. And he put all five children in an orphanage where they died as little children. He set a great example of human rights for his, of his own life. But yet he influenced the documents that founded the French Revolution. The American Revolution, not perfect either, not perfect either, but yet the American Revolution is grounded in this belief in divine order. The American Revolution was based in this belief in divine superintendence of humans. The humans get their right from God. The humans are protected by God. The humans are rewarded when they, when they, when they obey God. I'm not saying the founding fathers were perfect. They were all saints. They were all Christians or anything like this. But, but we make a huge mistake when we want the French Revolution over the American Revolution. See, progressivism, as it pertains to engineering, technology, communication, modernization, is a fine thing. You know. What did I do with my phone? I like my phone. I like progressivism. I like my car. I didn't have to, I didn't have to saddle up and ride over here today. <laughs> Yay for progressivism! <laughs> Progressivism, as, as it pertains to those things, modern, modernity is a good thing. But there's no such thing. Hear me clearly. There's no such thing as progressivism in the realm of ethics and morality. It doesn't exist. All moral, listen to this, write this down. All moral and ethical beliefs and practices are built on pre-existing values that come from eternal sources. And there's only two eternal sources of values. The enthronement of individual rights over the wisdom of God is almost as old as creation itself. It's just three chapters later from creation itself. And it's the only thing older than that value is the value of the sovereignty of God and the supremacy of His authority. That's what we're talking about. The foundation of the French Revolution omitted God's responsibilities as a result of God and the ultimate source of our wisdom. That's the problem with it. You see, there's a whole list of rights and a whole list, and, and, and a whole list of responsibilities. Uh, who was it? Um, the, Victor Frankl, one of my heroes survived Nazi prison camp, wrote the, the meaning of man. He said, yes, we should have the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor. But in San Francisco's harbor, and he wrote this back in the 50s, he said, in San Francisco Harbor, we should have a Statue of Responsibilities. <laughs> because the problem with the rights of man, as the, as, the, as the French wrote it, there was no list of responsibilities. There was only a list of rights. See, it, it, was, it was based on the premise 
that if you are, if you are, I want to be really careful with this. It was based on the premise that if you are persecuted, which they were, it, it, it was terrible what the church and the government was doing prior to the French Revolution. But because their hearts bled for people that were suffering, really suffering. People were, it was terrible. You go read about it. There's some terrible stuff that went on that authority did. So what they did, they focused on the people who were oppressed. And, and, and somehow they thought if you were oppressed, you couldn't have evil in your heart. You couldn't, you couldn't be corrupt if you were oppressed. You could only be corrupt if you were in charge. Now, it's true that power does corrupt. But I mean, you know what else corrupts? Sin. The sinful nature that I am born with corrupts me whether I'm in charge of something or I'm at the bottom of something. I can be, I can be corrupt. I can be a brat. I can be an idiot from either perspective. The first justice of the Supreme Court, John Jay, said, In forming and setting my belief relative to the doctrine of Christianity, I adopted no articles from creeds, but such only as on careful examination I found to be confirmed by the Bible. I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you to want your nation to be guided by Christian principles is not crazy. It's, it's the right way to think. Now, I'm not saying you're going to make it happen. I'm not saying that. In fact, I want, to, I, want to, I want to go to the third talking point today, which is the, the ultimate in Christian citizenship is to love loud, live holy, and speak truthfully. Take America for God, back for God, sounds noble. But it's not what I hear the Spirit saying today. It reeks of ideas that come from a theology called dominion theology. You don't want to go down that path of dominion theology. It sounds militant, something the New Testament church never entertained. And it removes evangelism as the primary objective of the church. The apostles never said, take Rome back for God. <laughs> never said that. I'm not saying that that wouldn't be a good thing to do, by the way. If you could, the more Christian you could make our nation, the better. I, I, think we, I, think we, I think we've made one mistake after the other in removing, removing Ten Commandments from courts, from courthouses, big mistake, Removing prayer from schools, big mistake. I think, I think it was all wrong-headed. And it wasn't good for our nation. And it, it, it's been proven. It's been proven. You see, you see, here's the thing about, and I said, I said a while ago that uh, this is about your children, you know. And here, here's the thing about youth, uh, uh, younger people, imaginations will always be captured by those with lower standards. <laughs> if there's a family in the church who doesn't supervise their children, 
uh, guess where all the young people want to hang out? Am I right, kids? All right, kids? You want to go hang out with the strict family? <laughs> or you, you want to go hang out with the, with the parents who don't pay any attention to what's going on? And you want to go to the house where you can party? Or you go to my house where you can't party? <laughs> I don't mean that you're young and you're horrible and terrible because you're young. You're just a human being. That's part of the tension that God a lot creates, I believe, to, to, to keep, us, keep us old people from getting... Two great of fuddy-duddies, you know? So, so God gives us these teenagers that challenge us, you know? And it's, it's really good for us. It's really good for us. But, 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 but young people will tend, have the tendency to have their imagination captured by wherever the standards are lower. And the problem with people with lower standards, here's the problem, is they, they can capture your teenagers, but they can't create any success for them. <laughs> right? they they can take your kids away from you, but then they can't do anything positive with them when they get them. So that's why we want to lift up Christian morals and principles, right? But the ultimate of Christian citizenship is to live loud, live holy, love loud. So we're not going to, I mean, if you want to go to a Take America Back church, they're out there. They're out there. I can recommend one to you. Where they're gonna, uh, t- you're gonna take America back for God every every sermon. Here's what uh, Acts two forty he said: Save yourself from this corrupt generation. <laughs> so maybe that's you see. Uh, I I don't uh, well. Let, let me let me let me give you three three quick bullets here. To love loud is to let no one's words, actions, or opinions reduce you to heartlessness or hate. With the present conversation about abortion, this is a really important for you. Stand your ground, speak your truth, but love loud. I hope you, everybody will read Sherry's post on Facebook yesterday or day before. It was really good. Secondly, to live holy is to live with Scripture as your highest authority, even if no one else in the world does. Amen. Study all those biblical texts where people stood alone. The greatest heroes of the faith stood alone for a period of time before God vindicated them. You're not, you're, God has not called you to be popular. And it's easy, it's easy to jump on board with social justice that's popular. And sometimes you should, by the way. Sometimes you should. Sometimes they get it right. And you should. But it's more challenging to jump on a social justice justice issue that's not popular. But Jesus hasn't called you to be popular. He's called you to be truthful. I said he's called you to be truthful. That gets me the last point. To speak truthfully is to figure out what is true and never under any circumstances say the opposite. Tom Sparling has a great video. Uh, I sent it out to some of the leaders on, on the subject that everybody's talking about. But he made the statement that I just made 
clumsily, he made it better. When we do social justice that the world agrees with, we're all over that. But we don't do social justice in the name of Jesus so the world will like us. We do social justice because it's right, because it's part of the kingdom of God. And we need to be just as engaged in the social justice causes that are not popular with the world for the lives that are impacted by it for the glory of God. Okay. I'm not for what is called the Benedict Option. Benedict went and hid from the world for three years and then emerged. It won't work in the 21st century. You have to have a debit card to survive now. I'm for the Noah's Ark option, which is to stand for truth with everyone you can, but find eight people or some reasonable number, pour your life into those eight to the extent that it will be very difficult for them to live with the broken values of a broken culture. Build an ark for eight. But our citizenship is in heaven as we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Happy July the 4th. church this week and we appreciate our pastor who's my dad for you know taking the time to pray and seek God of what he should say to us because we all know every day when you open your phone um, it's confusing <laughs> isn't it you feel like you're you, I don't know where to look I don't know I don't want to look but God has his commands are simple his burden is light and I love that those three bullet points that he gave us today that it doesn't, there's probably a pretty wide spectrum even in this room of political persuasions and backgrounds and ideas. But if you're a Christian, then those three things are the foundation for how to be in this world. Amen.